Welcome to Tech Matters, sharing our vast business and development experience with developers like you. Here are your hosts, Stephen Feather and Patrick Shetta. If you're serious about development, you need to be writing stuff down. Today, we're going to be talking about documentation. And we're going to stretch the gamut from when you first start a project to you get to the end of a development cycle or exit a project. So first thing, let's talk about what we would refer to as pre-coding docs Mm -hmm. and why those are important. Yeah, definitely. There are documents that should be in place before you start typing. For example... Business requirements, okay. <laughs> specs, um, fun- functional specs. What should it do? How should it do it? Should uh, your HTTP calls be secure or not? Things like that. Um, you know, calculations. Um, all of that stuff. Your functional functionality should be defined. <laughs> and we're not, we shouldn't be picking this up as we're going along. Six months into a project. Uh, uh, developers shouldn't be calling to ask you how do you calculate the interest return on something that right. should have already been out and determined. They shouldn't be asking for that down the road. Um, and and what we're doing is we're we're we are in the project establishing a source of truth. Now in the modern age, that's not necessarily a big deal. Uh, apparently, truth is relative, but in this case, truth had better be based on something that is either very close to being unmovable or requires a lot of folks in between to make a decision to change what is the truth. And it also uh, sets a destination, a target. I like that. Yep. And so we know we're headed in a certain direction. All right. Um, specs, features, functionalities. Uh, that sounds a lot like scope of the project. Yeah. And so these are scope requirements. Uh, the other thing that needs to be thought of out front are... Uh, legal documents definitely obviously a contractor you've got employment stuff but those fall under hr um, contracts with whoever you're going through but we're talking not necessarily those things Uh, we're looking at um, the terms of service does your organization have a terms of service for this specific product or have you done something goofy and you've taken your terms of service for your website and just changed the word website to mobile app and decided that that was sufficient without passing that by an attorney. Um, Privacy policies, same thing. So you say, hey, um, our website has a privacy policy. That should be sufficient for our mobile app. Uh, The only thing we do in our website is we keep track of cookies. Okay, that's fine. Do you do user registration? Where do you store that data? Well, we don't do that on the website. Are you doing that on the mobile app? Yeah, we are. Then your terms of service need to change to adjust and map the use case. And you need to have that available for your users before they sign up. Yeah, and, and I've also seen where, uh, as far as privacy um, and other legal things, is it was not defined up front uh, in, in any type of spec or requirement. And we get halfway through the project, and all of a sudden there's a new requirement that some auditor who just happened to be walking by and saw the app, said, where is this particular thing? And we had to totally refactor our login page to handle this information to make it upfront. It wasn't as simple as just putting a link. Sure. It was uh, some approval stuff for some financial company. Sure. I, I understand that. When you're dealing with government, insurance, really anything dealing with money, 
um, that's going to change hands. There are a lot of requirements that may be not necessarily your requirements, but they could be federal requirements for your industry. They could be requirements that are put into place because you accept credit card information. And you need to be thinking through all of those. Those are not last minute right before you ship that to uh, an app store uh, decisions. Those should be done up front. Um, in the middle of doing all of that scope, UI design is often a a conflict point. There is a this DMZ in between development and the the UI team or the folks who drew up the the UI. Um, I think we might have a way to solve that. We've heard some other folks and their input comes. That's we're not necessarily stealing this, but we're agreeing with their approach. Um, the first one is there are references out there for UI for platforms. Right. We should be using this, right? Right. And and I know that you've seen it, and I've seen it certainly, is uh, here's the design for the app. And you and you look at it, and the very first thing you see is a iOS tab group on the bottom. And you look at this and go, oh, great, this is the iOS version. Where's the Android and Windows version? No, no, that's the design. Sure. And, and then our response is, well, that's a problem for our users. Absolutely. Who we want to Absolutely. enjoy our app. Absolutely. And so when you're looking, you, Apple, Apple has a human interface guidelines. It's available for OSX, for iOS, for their two big platforms. And if you are going to be designing something, we're not even talking programming. If you're going to be designing something for iOS or OS 10, you had better be reading their guidelines because they have taken a lot of time and effort into putting those together. It's what they use. Their best practices have become the human interface guidelines. They change it every now and then, and the reason they change it is based upon their customers directly using one of their apps who says this doesn't seem to work, and they modify the guidelines. As much heat as Android takes for being ugly and apps not looking the same or lack of consistency, Google has a design guideline, how to, how to make stuff look great on Android. I swear no Android developer has ever opened those pages. Uh, if, and, and I think that's the problem is you can't blame Android as the platform. You have to blame the developers who on Android was low bar, low barrier to entry. They get in, they throw a couple of things on a screen and go, I've got an app with no review process. This is easy to do. Um, Microsoft. Microsoft calls theirs a little bit different. Theirs is the Microsoft Windows user experience. Well, they want users to experience the best that Windows has to offer. That's not an oxymoron. It's possible. If you've played with the new services, they are pretty nice. I haven't moved yet. I'm probably not going to, but I would say Microsoft's made some big inroads in how you interact with their devices and with their operating system. And so I think designers um, really need to be going through those, not just having this, what to a dev feels like they've had this LSD moment or the Zen and we've suddenly have a design for the app um, feeling that you get from a designer. Um, you really need to be focusing on what is valid UI. Yes. Okay. I, I've done a lot of talking. I'm not done. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm preaching. Um, <laughs> the other thing is terminology. Um, and now that we've established that there are guidelines, those guidelines all come with specific terminology for certain UI elements. 
If you are a designer, use the freaking terminology that the platform expects. Because that's what developers use. It's what we refer to them as. You can't be calling it the pink blob on the screen when we call it a UI switch. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Is there any wonder that we deliver something as developers? UI's folks look at it and go, well, that's not what I wanted. Well, you gave us a picture. We matched your picture best we could because it didn't look like anything that was native to begin with. <laughs> and then when we asked for clarification, you sent over these paragraphs of stuff that didn't have terminology we understood and you could never change to match something that we could all relate on. And so having a reference, a common reference point, a common point of truth allows us to get by, at least by that hurdle. Right. A little bit. All right. Right. And if you're developing say in, in iOS and y you are going to use, you know, the term switch or button, whatever that slider that whatever <laughs> that x code is providing you that matches the human interface guidelines you know so as you said the developers absolutely are working in that terminology and they're not working in you know light switch don't say light switch say switch or whatever your phrase sure. is say the right phrase sure uh one of the terms du jour this year is empathy and the preaching from conferences and from writers and from journalists is that developers need to have more empathy towards designers. Nearly 100% of the stuff I've read recently has been one directional. You know what, designers? Get over yourselves. You need to show some empathy to the guys on the other end who have to take your drawing and convert it into code in something else. I know developers are absolutely freaking amazing in their skills, but we can only work with so much. You can only polish a certain kind of elephant turd. Um, so anyway, all right. I'm opinionated today, a little bit. <laughs> terminology. If we can agree on the terminology between designers and developers, and that goes the other direction, between development teams. So if you're contracting this out, a certain part of your app, you better be using the appropriate terminology so that your contractor understands what they're talking about. You should expect your contractor to be using the terminology that you understand in-house so that you guys are on the same page, that it, it makes sense. It cuts down on time, cuts down on frustration, it cuts down on costs, means there's more money to go around. It may not come down to you, but there's more money to go around. Get that foosball table so we can have company <laughs> culture. Um, <laughs> colors. I love colors. Absolutely. I absolutely despise colors when it comes to working on a project. They're, they're one of the biggest pain points we come into. How are you? Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> especially when they are um, not properly specced. Um, you mean when somebody sends something over for CMYK, which is a print <laughs> color scheme, um, and you're working in a digital space, which ought to be RGB. Yep. Okay. See that? Or I'll see uh, make it match the website. Oh, I love this one. What colors are on the website? Well, you'll have to go down this chain of people trying to figure it out. Or you can just do a screen capture of the website and pick the color off in Photoshop. You mean the one in the gradient, which goes from here <laughs> to here and hope that you run over the picker at just the right time yeah. to get the one they want? Yes. And uh, I don't like either of those options. I just want you to tell me the color you want. Tell me the gradient you want. Uh, and I promise you I'll... I'll make it do what you say, but you got to tell me what it is you want. <laughs> and, and now we're, we're, getting, we're getting to a different space because uh, with Apple, 
2015, or I guess 2016, really pushing wide color. Mm -hmm. Um, That is something new that we haven't seen pushed big time into apps yet. They were using it on their stuff, um, but it was just introduced. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to start seeing assets come through with wide color, um, color spaces in it, and that's going to change things. So when a designer says, well, this is pure red, pure red two years ago isn't necessarily what pure red is in a wide color space. And so that's a terminology that has changed because the tech or the constraints around color space that we're using has changed. That's a separate topic, but those are the kind of things that developers look like, look at, are you delivering me um, standard RGB assets or are you standing, sending me wide color gamut assets? And we need right. to know. Right. Okay. And we also need to know if, uh, if we're, coloring some of our things um, that's not an asset, for example, text, make it this particular color, and maybe we're RGB now, but we're going to be wide in the future. Sure. You know, we might need to know that. Maybe it would be okay, but maybe we need to compensate uh, ahead of time so that when that switch is made, um, it'll make it easier for us. But, Absolutely. But just knowing the fact that we are doing it this way uh, will definitely save development in the future. And for now, wide color is really a big uh, Apple thing, but they're not going to be the only ones in the space. Uh, Android may be a little slower to catch on because they really don't have large 4K and 5K screens tied to Android devices. Uh, But Chromecast, uh, the Chromecast devices may need to end up supporting that. Uh, Windows definitely supports 4K and 5K, so they're probably going to move in that direction as an OS eventually. Uh, just something to consider when you're looking. Um, that, uh, that's something else I mentioned. Um, I know we talk a lot about mobile app development, but mm-hmm. both of us actually came from different places, uh, desktop development. And so most of what we talk about falls into both categories, both for mobile and for desktop app developers. Yes. Uh, just throwing that out there if anybody was asking. You may not be. Um, fonts. I expect this to be a Dido whatever. What the heck's a Dido? <sighs> right. And, um, <laughs> exactly. We're so common in our frustration, mm-hmm. we don't really have to say much some days. Um, and, you know, so if you're, uh, like I said, if you're designing a, an app for cross-platform, and you say, uh, this is what it looks like, and it, like I said before, it looks exactly like an iOS app, so therefore, the designer may be used. Uh, I think it's San Francisco font is is iOS, the sure. current one. The current one, um, and you know maybe that doesn't look so good on the Android version. Uh, so so maybe the design needs to have two fonts specified, or maybe you don't use either of those and use something in common that does look good on both platforms. But whatever that is, whatever the situation is, it must be specified. Um, or and delivered. Yeah. A development team, you know, a a geek isn't supposed to be the one running out to figure out which website did you download this font that you included in your SketchUp or in your mock-ups or in your Photoshop PSD file. And they shouldn't be the one to have to figure out if there's a free version. They shouldn't have to be the one to do the legal background to see if the ones that are installed on the company platforms are allowed to be included and shipped with an application. That's not within their job scope. That is in the job scope of whoever agreed to scope and pass this through legal. Those are extra assets that somebody needs to pay a licensing fee for in most cases. 
but I don't know how many times a project comes down and the designer just happened to have this font that they liked from another project and thought, well, I can do because they're delivering it and the font's not included, they can get away with it and expect their client to sign off on a particular font. It's just, it, it's craziness. And there's a disconnect in the de- design community about copyright infringement uh, that they need to work out. Because if a designer is willing to just ignore fonts and assume everybody has a $6,000 font in their system, there's something wrong. Right. All right. Um, I guess the last part of this one is uh, UX and behavior. Right. So how common is it that you'll get a spec from a designer? And here's our login screen. And here's our home screen. And then maybe you select an item on there. And then you see this screen. And, and that's what you get. Maybe the app is three screens and here's what you see. So as the developer, you have to know transitions. So given just the visual spec, it's safe for you as a developer just to make that second screen pop up, make that third screen pop up modally, I guess the word is, um, and go away and the user's not going to like it. The designer's probably not going to like it. So I guess if you're just given those three things, you're safe to do that. But you really should be given, okay, well, this opens up into a navigation group. So it by default slides in a particular way. Or, um, you know, if it's a tab group, um, I've seen people write their own custom tab groups where instead of uh, tapping on the tab at the bottom in the whole screen changes based upon what tab you're in, it might slide in. So that's, you know, definitely something custom. And if the designer has that in mind because their favorite app does that, it needs to be specified. Absolutely. And then we might push back whether it's hard to do or not. Um, that's a different story, but it should be specified. So uh, behavior, how do things slide in? Do things fade in? Do you have that little flipping page thing that I personally hate? Um, do things slide in from the bottom? When you want to delete an element in the table, do you pop up an alert and says, are you sure you want to delete this? Or do you use what the interface guidelines tell you to do and and present some particular slide in thing are you sure you want to so you know following the guidelines there but you know if you have just a you know specified row and the, the spec says you can delete this row that's not enough information to tell the developer what to do to delete it sure one of the newest things uh, i say newest we've been doing it as text for geeks for years is that we'll screen capture something and show it to another geek and say, Hey, this is what it looks like when it's broken. Or you'll send something to the client and you'll say, Hey, this is what we're thinking about. I think there needs, in my opinion, which, you know, the one that really matters, um, that designers and UI and the client needs to expect the same thing. When you're delivering something to the development team, you should, if it's something that is an animation or it is something that's moving, you can't just send static. You are going to need to start sending video of the transition and the change and be specific about what page goes where all of those flow things, um, just because it saves time and it allows everyone a little sense of CYA when the time comes down the road and somebody goes, well, that doesn't do what we wanted it to do. Well, if you're a, if you're a freelancer or you're a dev shop, you need to be able to come back and say, I, it looks exactly like what you delivered in this video or vice versa, where they say it does not look like what we expected in the video. Right. All right. And and I've even seen it where um, a, a children's game I developed at a certain point, the, uh, 
stated behavior was stars will fall down the screen. Well, the first question is, well, you know, what color are they? What do they look, what, what shape star are they? Oh, okay. got that. But now they're falling. So, so what is that behavior? Are they decelerating like maybe fireworks would? Are they, if you want that effect, are they also fading out? Or are they speeding up, like slamming to the ground like ninja stars? <laughs> like maybe if you uh, had a sparkler, then th- you know things would fall and bounce off things. So I mean that's kind of an unusual case for a business app, but stars falling. I don't know. You you, you say that, but we've seen some rather odd business apps in our lifetime. But that, go ahead. That is true. Yeah. So so you know, like you said, if you if someone could provide an animation, and then we try to simulate that. Boy, that would save a whole lot of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, software design. Up front, we're going to make some decisions. We're going to set the ground, the rules for the game, so to speak, uh, for the software design itself. Right. So this would not come out of um, a business person or a designer. This would be a software development team. So hopefully you would have... Uh, I am trying really hard to stifle the reason why you would not <laughs> ask the business person for their input in this portion of the discussion. But I will behave today. And, Good. and on that aside, I've seen business people looking over the shoulder of development and senior intimidating business person, <clears throat> outsourced developer, intimidated, code it that way, code it that way, code it that way. And they are. They're just typing whatever this guy tells them. And it was terrible. Uh, anyway. All right. Because in MBA school, <laughs> they don't teach you how to code. But all right, go ahead. I'm so, sorry. yeah, so you get your, your group together, uh, get a senior person, either who is senior and knows how to do this, or maybe has had uh, discussions with uh, the business people about functionality and has ideas how things should be done. But you really have to have at least something in place. So if if I was the person putting it together and I, and Steven was the one coding it, he's going to say, okay, what do I code? Before he even puts his fingers on the keyboard, what do I code? And then I would say, well, do this, even if it's just a start. But if I said, make it kind of do this, and he starts coding, then we absolutely have a problem uh, that will manifest itself uh, and get bigger and bigger. So you, you need to have something. Um, and then since we're talking about software design, um, I, I preach this one all the time and every talk I ever do is you have to design your stuff. Now, there are, as time goes on, you kind of get these ebbs and flows, pro design, you know, con design, back and forth. And I think that um, not long ago, everyone was very much against too much design and came up with these acronyms, you know, big BDUF, BDUF, big design up front. Don't do that. We're lean. We're agile. We're startup world. We're pitching. You know, we're going on Shark Tank. Everything's got to be quick. No big design up front. And the problem is you get a certain point in it where you might have to start maintaining it or extending it and you have huge problems. So I do not believe in the we're lean and agile and you know don't design anything i also am not a fan of the big design up front where you and and what i mean by that is you sit down and design everything and before you code anything you write out your class diagrams and you write all your interactions and how all the objects in your and your uh you know how everything flows and talks to each other and go here's our system you're just a coder monkey go do it and don't change anything just do that. So that's obviously 
bad. You're going to have problems with that too. So I like to say that you have to have something in between and you can't really point to where in between is it because it, it could change. And I call it flexible design up front. So you have to have some type of design things in place. For example, you're going to have network calls. And since you are, you can draw that as a circle or a box on your design diagram. There you've started. You're going to have that. And you're going to have things interacting with that. So you can start out very basic and build it out just enough. And you can say, well, I don't necessarily know how the back end's going to look yet. Well, okay. You don't have to flush that out yet, you know, to be determined. And and get your flexible design up front. And, and how, are you, where, how and where are you going to drop mocks in? Um, either for testing or for, you know, maybe a back-end service is not even completed, so you need to stub it out for now, how and where you're going to do that, and 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 make it make your design flexible so that you have something in place to get going, but not the big design up front that is so inflexible that when it's time to change it, you're going to break a whole bunch of stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> because if we do all that and we have a good plan... The next stage, which is as we're developing, is a lot easier. So we've got a basis set up. We're going to start working on our project. We're going to sit down and code. And now we make some decisions. Are we going to put inline comments? And not only is those, are those comments going to be in line, should these be in a form or a factor that is easy just for the person reading the code? Or are we going to extract this and create something from it? You got to make those decisions. And some of that would have been done in our software design. But now that we're doing that, let's talk about the reasons why we would do um, encode comments or documentation. Yeah. Um, so a long time ago, I worked on um, C++ systems and then Java, JavaScript. But, but here's an example of something that you would want to do if you're doing C++ in the year 2000. So auto pointers had not, I don't know if they were introduced yet, but had not been widely adopted. So, you know, reference counting, memory cleanup type of things. Um, so in a class header, you, you would want to say, this class provides the ability to do whatever, you know, uh, to, to give a description. So if you had a particular class, it was a factory class, and its whole purpose was to be a factory and create things and hand them out, you might want to put a note in your factory class, and this is, this is what we did, what I said about we not having the automatic memory cleanup in C++, was put a note and say, you know, so the comment would say, this is a factory class that provides you with these particular objects. Note, it is up to the consumer of these objects to delete them. So if you're in C++ and you have the word new somewhere, you better have the word delete somewhere, or that's a memory leak, that's a problem. So what that comment there was saying is, I'm a factory and I'm going to write the word new, but I'm never going to write the word delete, and that's up to you. So if if you don't do that and you have a memory leak, it's your fault and you've broken the warranty. Because I documented it. Right. <clears throat> so So that's not relevant at all anymore, but it's a good example of stating, I do this, and this is the warranty I give for my functionality. Particularly when you're working with APIs within your app or uh, private APIs or APIs that you expose to somebody else. Um, so we're talking about, we're going to document our class headers. 
We're going to say who we inherited from. We're going to give it a name. Hopefully the name of our class and the name of the methods are easy enough to read. So a user has a rough idea or a very good idea what that particular method does or what that class represents. Um, We're going to talk about functionality, but not really talk about the functionality unless needed. So if there's a specific reason for extra detail you should be putting that in right okay okay maybe if maybe if you see like a complicated calculation <laughs> with a bunch of poorly named variables Why which is, is this in here <laughs> which is a different issue but remember that mba guy who was mm-hmm. telling us stuff yeah that's never mind yeah All so right. if you see a big long formula and you you can clarify it with a comment right before it that says calculate interest because do that bob said this is how we do it <laughs> All right, generated docs. This is a point of contention between different teams. Some like it, some don't. Uh, really, it kind of started with, I guess, back in the Java docs days. You would comment your stuff a certain way. You could run through, parse all that out, and create uh, class lists and relationships to their methods. And you had basically rough documentation for the code itself. Um, and then JavaScript has uh, adopted some of that uh, with JS doc. And I guess it was the guys at Sentia that kind of started that because they had this huge framework they needed to be able to deliver. Your opinions, your thoughts. Yeah, so I love Java docs when I was working uh, in Java and Eclipse and integrated into Eclipse very nicely and um, very much uh, saved you time when you had to look stuff up, especially in libraries that you did not write or your own code you did not write. Uh, so it was very good, but usually they were very large projects. So, you know, you don't want to tax your memory and memorize all these documents. That's what they were good for. Now I've seen on JavaScript projects where we've had someone dedicate a bunch of hours during a week to JS duckify the whole thing, you know, it more than doubles the size of the code, the way they did it and makes it, you know, totally unpleasant for scrolling and finding things and as the developer trying to look in this. But the problem with that is they were usually smaller projects and you usually had touched most of the code in this small project that you're working on and you don't really need these documents and we started to get into side arguments about how things were worded and where and how much and how many times we should generate them and you know, if I'm working in my IDE, which does not support JS Duck, and I have to go open a web page and scroll around, the bottom line is I never used it. And ultimately, I was the one who drove the decision to just rip it all out, have normal, commented, well-commented things, get rid of all the the JS Duck that was intended for the generated docs, get rid of it. No one was going to look at the generated stuff anyway. And, and that's that's the, the question. When we have when you're adding something to the product, what is the business value of this? And we had that discussion a couple of weeks ago. Um, Does it bring business value? And in that case, in a small project, it may not bring business value that warrants the pain points for the developers opening the files, the time that sat to put all of that in, the wasted, in this case, uh, time having discussions about how often do we generate this. If nobody's ever going to look at it, then it has zero value and everything was a waste. Um, that seems like a very easy business decision to make. Developers, as much as we like to think we are the most sane people in the world and we make the absolute best decisions, not always. We waste a lot of time on stuff that really doesn't matter. Um, 
All right, ongoing modifications. As we're working through the projects, things do change. Uh, we're not waterfall. Everything's not locked in. We are kind of moving a little bit. Um, UI design changes as we go through. We need to document that stuff so that if somebody comes back and says, this doesn't look like the original spec, we can sit and say, and Bob signed off on the change to change the color of this button or to relocate this button or to totally get rid of the button, you know, whatever the reason, you got to document that in there. Yeah. And I think the the easy case to think about is just what you said, maybe things that are changed for UX region, reasons, uh, maybe that it, we're, we're not going to use the side drawer anymore or whatever. But I, I just thought of a bigger reason. What about that period of time when we went to flat design? Everything went to flat design. And within a few month period, if you did not look like this new flat design, you were old timer and you were you had a bad app uh, perceived by the consumer. Absolutely, you better you're almost starting over with that design doc. Absolutely. To in, instead of just removing a button, you're starting over. You're redefining fonts and colors and not using shadows and things like that. So that's a much bigger effort there. <clears throat> Software design. We we know that early on we had this discussion um, about where you know we we're talking about how we're going to lay out the project as a whole. There are times that something changes that we've seen it in architecture. Something changes and we have to modify the foundation. And then when we're talking about architecture and design, that's kind of what we're looking at. We're talking about the base level. How does that look? So a lot of what we talk about, because we use similar terminology, when you're looking at a building that's being built, normally you build the foundations, you don't touch that again. There are times you have to go back and you reinforce a foundation or you change what's happening underground because of outside parameters or something. This is one of those times that you re- definitely need to document why we made such a serious change of such a serious part of our project. Right. Um, and I can think of a case where... Um, long time ago, Y2K project that I've mentioned before, uh, all of us were sitting around in a room, uh, a room not much bigger than a normal size office, but we had about six or seven guys sitting around, kind of a SWAT team type of thing. And I was the one in charge of uh, documenting the design. So with C++, so class diagrams were very, very prominent. We had the interaction diagrams and, and all that stuff. I was the one who was maintaining that. But Anytime that we had a change, you know, my buddy next to me made a change, I didn't go in and just change the document. We would have a printed out copy up on the whiteboard behind us. And it was fair game if someone had a change to uh, kind of, I guess, pre-GitHub-y, you know, code review type thing. We would just turn around and discuss it with each other. And if it was like, yeah, go ahead and do that, you had permission to go and with a pencil change the document. And usually they were small things like, uh, well, yeah, we used to just have this one class, but now it really needs to be a composite. So then you, you know, draw the component arrow and, and do this little thing so that someone looking at it could understand that that guy is now a composite object or, you know, whatever the case is. And the pencil drawing would sit up there for the full week and it was the law. What was on that was better be what matches the code. And then I would go in as I would find the time, take the pencil drawing, get it in, um, I think it was Visio at the time, fix it up, print it out, new document up on the wall, and, and we would work that way. So it, it not only 
facilitated the communication of the this evolving design, but it gave us all this central repository, a visual repository, which is a drawing on the wall, so that we, we could only see what we, we could not only see what was happening, but you also felt free that you had the ability and power to change it. That change was accepted. Sure. An example for iOS of a serious architecture change. If you go, you're building an iOS app, and you go pull somebody's library in, I swear 90% of the time they want you to put a line of code in the UI application delegate, did launch with options, and that is where you start up their library, whatever it is. This is horrible. This is why apps take so long to launch, because everybody's library says, I want to go here. Well, no, you should class that out and at the appropriate time, load that in, not everything at the same thing. But because folks have been doing it so long for so many years, that has just been the way it's done. Well, no, that's not best practice. And even Apple's now saying, you guys need to stop doing this. The reason it takes your app 25 minutes to launch in our fastest devices is because everybody's loading everything up front. And we know that, but you know, it's so easy. Well, I want to do analytics. Well, we'll start that here. I want to do crash detection. Well, I'm going to do that up here too. We're doing Bluetooth. Oh, we'll load that up here too. Oh, okay. Do I do that? You know, when are you going to start actually running the app? Well, we, that's not important. Why would you load stuff that you're not using yet? I mean, you don't need Bluetooth until the user has agreed to the Bluetooth use. So don't start it yet. I mean, there's just so many things that are from an architectural point of view, bad decisions were made. And even, you know, going back, maybe Apple at one point early on, I don't remember, it's been so long. Um, maybe at one point they said, hey, this is the best place to start loading your libraries. That's not the case. Um, so that's a serious architecture thing. And you're going to see a lot of folks refactoring their iOS apps in 2017 and 2018, yes. trying to speed some things up. Um, all right. So we've gotten through development. Um, we're out of the development phase. We've got all this stuff we've generated. Um, some of it usable, some of it not. Depends on the argument. Um, where are we at? Right. So what I've what I've seen on some larger projects. Actually, it's funny based on what you're about to say. <laughs> is um, you you will get uh, if if it's super big enterprise and they've had maybe some business consultants in or something. You know, part of what they've agreed to do is create the final documentation. So they've either been doing it all along or whatever, but they, you know, put together this big binder of final, final documentation. Final documentation. Yes. That w could look just like that or bigger. Um, so, Oh, you said enterprise. <laughs> final documentation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. First version. <laughs> so financial industry. Yeah. Final documentation. Yes. Finally. All right. Version zero of the final documentation. I'm done now. Um, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so it's usually, you know, too much to consume in any reasonable way. It's probably Who's read this right, stuff. It's probably right? over, overly wordy and complicated. And and if I was a you know a, a technical dev trying to find what I need in here, where do I go? You know, it might be strewn through the whole thing. Um, so that's a problem. It it's useful from from for the business as far as auditing and and you know security exchange commission whatever they do for your I give you that one but but as a developer on the team maybe a new developer on the team who has to come in that's that's a problem so we need to have a better way all right what's your better way <laughs> better way would be don't do that <laughs> maybe you could um, create 
smaller sections. Okay. So maybe you have just a section that is the design and a section that's just based upon the, the you know the software design, uh, not the UI design, and and maybe decisions you made or maybe not. Maybe saying this is what it looks like now. Here's how it. Here's the sequencing of how things work. You know, and now that I think about it, maybe you would, wouldn't want the history. This is what it is now. Um, terse wording. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to see. Be careful here. I don't necessarily want to see use case wording. User will pick up device and tap this button. User will blah blah blah. I don't necessarily want to see that if if I'm trying to. Uh, work on an app from a maintenance type point of view or something. Because on the other side of that is this button does because the, the whole process of development and we're going to have discussions about this later on. So I don't want to get too deep. We've gone long today anyway. Um, But the reason you don't want to see those use use cases is because we've converted use cases to something tangible and it's no longer a user who needs this. We now have this that does this. And that's what technical documentation is. The other side is the documentation from the user's point of view. This is what we're talking about is the software itself. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and as, as someone who's coming into this stack of stuff, hopefully it looks better than that, um, if you can consume it and, and onboard with a legacy person. So I could, if I'm the new guy and, and you know, this is sits on your desk, you could sit down with me and say, okay, ignore all this. Look at only this. The idea of this architecture was this. Focus on this piece first and and mentally work outwards, whatever, you know, the mental shortcuts that this person has that absolutely would be helpful if, if you can afford to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. On that note, we're going to finish up documentation. We believe the documentation is important, is important from A to B. And on that note, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining.